How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode 16 of the Easy Peasy Podcast. I am very excited about this episode. Uh, I interviewed a good friend of mine. We're calling her Dr. Melissa. And that's because that's her name. We're just omitting the last name. But, um, you know, I've known Melissa a long time. I worked with her when I was maybe 19. Uh, Worked in Colorado for a summer on a guest ranch, and we got to be friends out there. And I've had the pleasure and the privilege of sort of witnessing her journey over the last eight or nine years. And it's been pretty wild to watch. You know, when I started this podcast, she was at the top of the list of people I wanted to have on. And I think you'll you'll understand why after listening to this. So I encourage you to give it a thorough listen. We hit on a lot of things here. Um, you know, we, we kind of skimmed the surface of a whole slew of different topics. And my hope is that in the future, we'll have Dr. Melissa come back on and we will kind of dive into these topics a little bit deeper, um, maybe one at a time. So anyways, guys, with that, I will, I will hand it off. I hope you enjoy. I think so. All right. Well, welcome to the Easy Peasy Podcast, Dr. Melissa. Um, you know, it's you're probably the first person on the list as far as who I wanted to interview for this for this show. So, excuse my nervousness, but welcome on. And you know, I was thinking maybe the best way we could start is actually with just a little breathing. What do you think? Mm. Wow, thank you, Mike, so much for having me as part of this. In the moment you told me you were going to start a podcast, I knew it was the right move for you to keep exploring your passions and understanding more about the world. And I do feel honored to be a part of that process for you and present on the show today. And it would be my honor to begin the show with a breathing exercise. <clears throat> Let me just sit for a moment here and breathe into what, what might be mm-hmm. best for the listeners. Take your time. I think if we just work with a little bit of belly breathing today, some simple awareness of the, the diaphragm can really shift our physiology fast. So wherever you are listening to this podcast, find a comfortable position, whether you're on your seat or on your back, maybe you're on your feet even, maybe you're in motion, maybe you're still, but whatever position or action you might be doing, see if you can bring your awareness to your belly. And as you welcome inhales into your body, see if you can let your belly expand both downward and outward. As we deeply inhale, the diaphragm actually descends towards the pelvic floor. And this symphony of movement in our organ system, when we recruit our diaphragm, really starts to 
open up. So keep on working with this visualization of the diaphragm descending down towards your pelvis as you welcome more and more depth into your inhales. And see where you notice your body expanding a bit more. Maybe it's in the sides. Maybe it's in the back. Do your best to direct that movement downward, helping you to root through each inhale. And then we'll drop into the show together with three big breaths and exhales that are audible. We make a long audible sigh, it physiologically shifts our nervous system. So go ahead and take a nice big breath in through that diaphragm all the way down to the pelvis. Open your mouth, exhale it out, let it go. Wonderful. Two more, just like that big deep breath, inhale, fill up the lungs. Open your mouth, sigh out, audible exhale. Good, one more time, big belly breath, filling up with air, life force, inviting it in. And audible exhale, let it go. Beautiful. Thank you for everyone for dropping into the show in that practice. And maybe we'll play with some more practices before the show is over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really hope we will. Um, that was kind of part of the idea. But thank you for leading that. That that made me feel better. I hope everybody else out there feels the same. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's just so wild because I've had the honor of watching your your journey over the last, I want to say, eight or nine years. Um, and it's been pretty wild. When I met you, you were you were pretty into yoga. Uh but I think you were still kind of at the beginning of your your journey in that regard. So why don't you tell us, like, when did yoga become a part of your life? Yes, I I will love to go into that. Um, <clears throat> I feel the need to take a moment, however, to just kind of introduce myself before I start talking about my past. Yeah, yeah, please, please. Yeah, so my name is Melissa, and I am a physical therapist. I'm a yogi, and I'm also an explorer of all of the depths of life through through different practices, such as movement and music, and really allowing ourselves to be curious, right? So these certain things define me: being a physical therapist, practicing yoga, etc. But my my purpose and my passion is to really help people bring awareness into their bodies through subtle practices that weave together the principles of anatomy and physiology and movement science with this deeper layer of self that we can explore through the principles of yoga. <clears throat> and we'll get a little bit more into it, I'm sure, later on in the episode, but the type of physical therapy I practice is unique in that I work uh, with the pelvic floor and I focus my attention on different diagnoses and struggles that folks have below the waist. And this is a path that really has started to unfold for me just in the last six months. And I'm excited to share more about how I'm doing in the now. Um, but yes, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit more about yoga and how when we first met, my 
you're right. I I was just starting this this curiosity about my body through through the, the ancient science that is yoga. And I believe we met in 2000. I want to say 12. Oh, right, right. So this was even before I participated in my 200-hour yoga teacher training. Mm. Um, and that occurred in 2014. And I was really lucky to be in this 200-hour training for a really potent period of time in which we covered all of the content in 30 days. Um, and I was blessed to have this opening in my life to be able to participate in it as an intensive. <clears throat> and, you know, it sounds, I don't mean to cut you off, but it sounds um, like my, sounds like my permaculture design course, you know, it was two weeks. It wasn't a full month, but there's something about those kind of, uh, immersive learning experiences that you cannot get any other way, you know? It's so true. And really the, the potency is felt so much more deeply when we can, like you said, immerse, um, and just process everything all at once. It really has the potential to, like it did for me, cause a dramatic shift in how I received the world and how I started to see myself in the world and how I started to shift what I was putting into the world. Um, mm. So, yeah, I'm really grateful for that 30-day period. And um, that's that happened. So I did that training in Jackson, Wyoming, which is where I was born and raised. And this is another beautiful part of my, my past and my foundation for why I am as connected as I feel in my 30s. Um, growing up in the nature was such a gift. Such a gift. Um, one that I just continue to benefit from every single day. Yeah, you know, I, I, I feel like you were lucky to have grown up there and I'm sure you know that I don't need to tell you that but you know just having that natural beauty around you it's got to sink into your bones yeah it does it sinks into to your habits and what you turn to for restoration nature is just waiting for us to receive it and it's always in a state of giving it's mm. always there for us when we need it and we just have to have the intuitive wisdom to turn to it in times of need, especially. Um, mm. So the, the medicine of the earth is, I think, one of the greatest gifts that we have, no matter when we start to receive it in our, along our life. Mm. I couldn't agree more. Mm. So, so taking that training in Jackson, Wyoming was, was really a layered gift for me to open my awareness in a place that was meaningful to me um, in so many ways. So that 30-day intensive led me to get really curious about the more subtle aspects of yoga and particularly the slowing down piece. And we are blessed with technology and so many ways to advance our lives these days. Um, and they are also gifts, but it's so important as things start to pick up and especially after the pandemic, as things start to pick up some more, it's so important that we have practices that we can turn to that allow us to be nourished 
and restored in the same way that we were just talking about nature being able to do that for us. We also have the capacity in our bodies to restore and re-nourish ourselves. Mm. And it's an innate wisdom that can be accessed at any point. It's just a matter of learning how to attune to that more subtle vibration and message that your body is sending you always. Um, Mm. So restorative yoga is the biggest part of how my path really started to open into where I am now. And where you are now is physical therapy. Like when, when did you make that decision? Yeah. So restorative yoga helps me understand the magic in slowing down. And I wanted to be able to offer this to other people. So I learned more about restorative yoga itself. Now there are many forms of yoga out there, as we all know. Everything from your usual hot yoga and vinyasa flow classes that you might find in more urban areas um, to more specific practices, things like ashtanga or kundalini yoga, some examples. Um, Restorative yoga is similar to yin yoga in that it's much slower pace. Um, yin yoga, you're typically holding postures for a number of minutes, and they can be postures that are more uh, intense for the body. So pigeon is a common yoga pose that hopefully folks know about, but if they don't, let me explain it. Um, <clears throat> you can start to come into pigeon. You, you bring one of your legs up in towards your towards your trunk, and you have your hands on the floor, so you're facing down on the floor, and you're your leg is tucked underneath you as if you were kind of in an Indian style. And then your back leg is long behind you and your toes are face down. Um, And then you kind of fold over your folded leg. And this is a really intense hip stretch that a lot of folks really love. So something like that is a yin pose where you're really holding more of an intense posture. Mm. Whereas restorative yoga, you're setting yourself up in postures that are really, really gentle and have um, the potential to almost really invite you into a state of rest. You know, I don't know if you, I don't know if you would really want to rest in a pigeon pose for too long. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't imagine you would, no. <laughs> right, so restorative yoga is more like using bolsters and blankets and really setting yourself up for a really juicy kind of rest where the body is completely at ease. Um, and can melt into the support of these props. So I was really fascinated by this idea of using props to um, really dive into the the art of rest. (laughs) And so I learned more about restorative yoga and found that it was pioneered by a woman named uh, Judith Hansen Lassiter. And she's considered the grandmother of restorative yoga in the West. She studied with Iyengar, who is one of my favorite um, traditional yoga teachers, and he uses props a lot and focuses on alignment, which is another reason I love his work. Um, And Judith studied with him in India and brought his teachings to the West and combined them with her knowledge of anatomy and physiology of the human body because she is a physical therapist. 
And this is where the two paths converged for me, where I realized that I could take this love for yoga and intellectualize it a bit more in sort of a Western sense and pursue a path of pursuing my doctorate in physical therapy where I could dive a little bit deeper into the medical aspects of the body's um, potential needs, right? So physical therapy, we're addressing the needs of the physical body because it's in a state of pain or it's in a state of recovery. Um, and so I digress a little bit. <laughs> no, no, that was all fantastic. That was a perfect description. Thank you. One long train of thought. We'll, we'll try no. to streamline my answers to your question. <laughs> Well, on on the on the vein of, you know, slowing down, right? That's kind of what this podcast is supposed to be all about. Like I want it to be a very relaxed environment for people to learn, right? And <laughs> golly, I've got a lot of thoughts here um that I'd like to go back to, but you know, I'm 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 tempted to ask you to explain exactly what PT is. Or I'm sorry, not PT, but pelvic floor therapy. Absolutely. <clears throat> it's a question I'm sure a lot of your listeners are wondering as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's something that is, isn't is super well understood from the general, um, the general public. And so pelvic floor physical therapy is unique in that we're addressing the musculoskeletal system, right? So that just means your bones and your muscles, mm-hmm. but we're doing it in the pelvis and why because we have a group of muscles that line the bottom of our pelvis and they control urinary bowel and bladder function Mm -hmm. and these muscles also have the role of holding up our internal organs and helping to manage the pressure systems in our in our bellies um that's, you know, kind of we started with talking about the diaphragmatic breathing and how when we bring <clears throat> a big breath in to the body, the diaphragm goes down and it kind of gently presses on your internal organs and they go down and the pelvic floor, if it's functioning properly, will follow um, that sort of gentle downward pressure. This is a PT that only women need or that only um, those with postpartum concerns need who people have who have delivered babies um, or or potentially people who are incontinent that's another really common um, diagnosis that people would assume pelvic floor PT addresses and indeed we do address people with vaginas and people who've given birth and people who can't hold their urine in But those are just three basic diagnoses that we work with. As pelvic floor PTs, there are a number of different pain diagnoses that can unfold in the pelvis um, as a result of maybe injury. If you've ever fallen and you hurt your tailbone, you potentially have uh, some pelvic floor dysfunction as a result of those muscles kind of rebounding after that traumatic event. Um, And sometimes pelvic floor dysfunction can look really um sort of masked maybe you have a habit of sitting down or standing to urinate and it takes you a couple minutes to actually release and void your urine 
well, that's actually just a sign that your pelvic floor is a little bit tight. And, you know, so these are just sort of basic examples of the fact that like anywhere else in the body, we're working with muscles and bones and ligaments that are all playing together and dysfunction can happen all along the pathway of mm. those structures. So, well, if I may, you know, I just find it interesting. <clears throat> Obviously your, your interest is in the, the body, right? The whole body. Mm-hmm. And I think of you as one of the most holistic thinkers I've ever known. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's interesting that you would find such a specific niche, right? And, um, I almost, I can draw the parallel very easily to what I'm doing, even though it's in a totally different field, all that, you know, I'm trying to address issues of global, you know, environmental concern and hunger with my push for gardening. Right. And it's a very specific solution to a very broad problem. And I think that maybe pelvic floor PT kind of fits that bill where it's, you're addressing a specific spot in the body, but it's related to so, so much else. Is that Mm -hmm. a fair, is that a fair thing to say? Absolutely. It absolutely is. And I love where your mind is with that, because if you think about it, if you have any kind of problems with your basic body functioning of bowel, bladder and sexual function, inherently that's going to impact your life in so many ways. And that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about public floor PT is because it, it sheds light on issues that folks generally don't feel comfortable talking about um, or even know that they can receive treatment for. So the more I can sort of educate folks on what a pelvic floor PT does, the more they may be like, oh, you know, I could benefit from that. I have a friend who might be able to benefit from that. Um, So that they can, you know, start to heal in other areas of their life. Um, But yes, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I just turned my microphone down um, because I realized like I needed to let out a couple little noises. I didn't want to interrupt you. And you're oh. somebody that's <laughs> you're somebody that's encouraged me to to do that kind of thing as far as, um, you know, you taught me about lion face. Can you explain what lion face is? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And I I hope that our listeners are okay with the fact that this is a tangential conversation. Um, Well, I think it's all connected and I think they'll... It is, it is. And I I have to be honest as well. I'm a little self-conscious because I feel as though I can't conclusively answer your questions. Um, No, you're doing fantastic. (laughs) For me, that's why it's good this is a long episode because we do have a lot of things that we can talk about and cover. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So let's take it back to the diaphragm, always my favorite. The lion's breath is a yoga technique in which you take a really large breath in. And right before you let the breath out, you stick your tongue out as far as you can. And you scrunch up all the muscles in your face really tight and really tensely. And then when you exhale you make kind of like a combination of fogging the mirror and a roar. So it, I'll, do, I'll do a demonstration even though you can't see me. Big breath in, 
sticking my tongue out, scrunching my face. So it's sort of this <clears throat> opportunity to release breath in a really intense way and scrunch up all the muscles in our face that are working overtime, all the time, right? We're communicating all day as humans and our face muscles are working to help us do that. So lion's breath sort of takes all of our face muscles to their end ranges of motion, which helps the muscles to relax. Um, and then with the tongue stuck out and a nice exhale through an open mouth, uh, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that might be beneficial. I find lion's breath to be a really, like a facilitator for letting go. You know, like mm. if you're really just sort of like frustrated with something and you kind of just want to like let out a big huff and puff, you know, lion's yeah. breath is like, ah, <laughs> and you can certainly add noise to your lion's breath. Um, and I love that you brought this in too. It kind of threads in with my uh, passion for normalizing, normalizing the pelvic floor, yes, but normalizing the body, normalizing the functions of our body. Our bodies are intuitive and intelligent and there are so many ways that we're designed to move and to take in energy and to discharge energy and so lion's breath is just one way to actually discharge energy that gets trapped in our bodies and as we grow up you know it starts to become like unacceptable at some point to do weird things with your body I, i'm not sure what that's all about but it really detracts from the fact that we can at any point move our bodies and express our tissues in a way that helps us to get rid of tension. And we all know that tension can stay in our bodies and cause a lot of things to go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I just want something everyone should try. <laughs> well, I just want to like prove it to the listeners. Right. And we should just do it again together. <laughs> and I hope that the listeners have the galls, right. Have the, have the gumption to join us. So. Yes. But talk totally. us through it. Talk it through us. Uh, talk us through it one more time. Sure. Okay. So if you're, say you're in a room with somebody else right now, maybe you have your headphones in and, and you're not quite comfortable doing something weird with your body with your, your mate in the room. <laughs> a position you can come into is like child's pose, right? Where your knees are tucked underneath you and you're facing down on the floor. Um, and your arms can be overhead or behind you so that you're kind of close into your own space or even a downward dog is a great position to do a lion's breath in uh, to kind of be in a more of a protected space. Mm -hmm. So for those of you that have never tried lion's breath or you're with somebody else, you might be uncomfortable with doing this. So take those positions where you're facing more of the ground. And if you're maybe you're alone and maybe you're really curious about this practice and you want to see what it looks like, you can even do it in the mirror. Um, kind of receive yourself as you as you do this new thing um, but whatever you decide I'm going to walk you through like the verbal instructions before we actually do it again what you do is you take a breath in and right before you breathe out you stick your tongue out you open your mouth really really wide you raise your eyebrows you make your eyes really big and then when you exhale you let out this sort of sound like a roar or a the fogging of the mirror, which is really that constriction of your vocal cords a bit. Um, and by all means, you can let out a sound. So I'll do one round on my own and then I'll walk us through three, three rounds. So I'm gonna take a big breath in with my diaphragm descending down, sticking my tongue out, scratching at my face and letting it go. Ha! Ah. <laughs> and the more you can 
let like really hold on to the ha the more you <laughs> So let's try that three times, everybody. Take a nice big breath in. Stick out your tongue and roar. <laughs> Again, breath in, stick out your tongue, and exhale, roar. <laughs> one more time, just like that. Make sure you scrunch up your face really good for this last one. Exhale, roar. <laughs> and then just find yourself a moment to close your eyes and receive. Receive the residue of those simple three breaths where you brought your awareness to your face and your release. Feeling that in your body. And then when you're ready, letting that go, opening your eyes and coming back. <laughs> uh, you know, the feeling it gives me in my Base is the same feeling I get when I kind of do those big stretches in the morning, you know, just those instinctual kind of stretches. And um, yeah, thank you, thank you for 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 teaching us about that. Um, it's something yeah. I've learned to do, like you said, whenever I just feel like I need to kind of let out let out some some energy, some tension. So. Right, and that's what's so neat about it. That metaphor that you just made of when you wake up in the morning and your body just wants to activate all of its muscles and stretch you into your full range of motion. That is an amazing intuitive gift that the body does automatically for us. It does, it wakes up our muscles. It lubricates our joints because we're pushing into these end ranges of motion and it helps to release any residual tension and those are just three simple things that are happening but the body is constantly doing these things intuitively and that's the cool part about becoming privy to them is that you can then bring them in even more uh, with intention to help you with, with different parts of your day when you might be feeling certain ways yeah 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 you know uh it's kind of like i'm thinking about how once you realize that your body wants to do these things, you can kind of like encourage it and you can embrace it. And it's funny because, you you know, we were talking about how you don't want to look weird in front of people doing this kind of stuff. Um, so obviously, like you almost need to create a private space some some of the time uh, to do these kind of funny practices. But it's so worth doing. I've learned it all from you. Mm -hmm. And I know that I know that dancing is kind of a part of your practice as well. And just wiggles and rocking mm -hmm. and doing all kinds of funny, you know, movements, movements, right? Always moving your body. And so I guess it's just um, I don't know if you want to expand on any of that stuff. but Sure. I'd love to. So the wiggles is one of my favorite things to talk about. Yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned a little bit ago, you know, at some point in our lives, for a lot of people, maybe not everybody, uh, but at some point we start to, you know, become an adult and more aware of our own bodies and our own way of presenting ourselves. And at some point we decide that it's unacceptable to, to do weird things with our body. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, and that is detrimental to our ability to actually intuitively 
come into our bodies in a way that helps us move through our day. I've kind of said that in a variety of ways, but um, if we think about, take a deer, for example, a deer, this is a common example. So a deer can get really startled, right? Maybe by the side of the road, literally deer in headlights situation where they're dashing out of the way of a car and their life is in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the car passes, the deer is likely in a state of stillness, trying to kind of collect itself after an adrenaline rush. And one fascinating thing that the deer's body goes through is this process of shuddering and shaking. Um, and it's almost yeah. like you can see the skin ripple. You might have even seen your dogs do this or, or another furry. I was going to say it's similar, similar to a dog shaking off water. I've, I've seen a deer do this. It's a very, it's a very cool, their skin does ripple. Um, yes. And, yeah. Yes. And that is really neat. That's a physiologic response to the stress response that the deer just had to actually help that deer's body release the, the tension that occurred as a result of the adrenaline rush mm-hmm. um, and when we think about how trauma impacts our bodies um, i mean this is a whole different sort of conversation but um, trauma whole is gets held in the body and in our tissues and for those of you that are curious about how this happens there's a wonderful book um, called the body keeps the score and it's by dr bessel van der kolk who is uh, out of the Boston area. He's a neighbor of mine um, and also connected to a friend of mine through her work. But uh, his work really allows us to understand how traumatic experiences, which a traumatic experience can look like anything for anybody. And uh, there's, there's so many different ways that we can hold on to big events that happen to us and shape our lives for better or for worse. Um, but they often get held in our tissues. And if we can start to learn how to actually use our bodies to access these holding patterns that have occurred as a result of our our sort of stifling this inherent instinct to shake things off. Mm. You know, we have like we're cognitively as humans, we we stop ourselves from doing these weird things with our body because it's not socially acceptable. Hmm. However, it's causing a buildup of tension that well, then, oh, you know, it's a cascade effect in other areas. So it's funny the the deer thing, right? I can't I can't <laughs> help I can't help but think about and it's funny to ask you, I'm you know, I'm comfortable enough to ask you this question, but you know, I can only speak for myself and my body, but sometimes when I urinate, right, and it's just a good one, I wiggle like crazy at the end. You get this irresistible urge. Maybe it's not quite irresistible. You could you could resist it, but I don't ever bother fighting that that urge to wiggle at the end of a <laughs> urination. And I mean, do women get that? Like, I'm just curious. <laughs> I love it. I love your openness and your honesty. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I don't have an answer. I don't know what that is for you, but that's something that your body wants to do and you give into it, which is beautiful. And it could, when you're, when you do your day and, and you go through that process, your body, your body's blood pressure is changing. Um, and 
I mean, wow, there's so many things physiologically that are happening. And to me, it sounds a little bit like a joyful experience. Oh, it's you. great. It's almost, it's almost orgasmic. It's almost yes. orgasmic. Yeah. And that's yeah. the cool thing about basic body habits, like bowel, bladder, and sexual function, right? Everybody wants to have a good pee. Everybody wants to have a good poop. And everybody wants to have a good orgasm. And when you do, if you want to wiggle about it, because it feels so good, by all means. Oh yeah. Like get it out, right? Get get that wiggle out. It's like doing a little victory dance, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the cool well, thing about wiggling too, like whenever it happens, is it's helping you to develop more of a relationship with your body. Because as humans, our wiggles are are conscious, right? We're saying, I'm gonna wiggle my body. And the more we practice it, the more maybe subconscious it does become, which is a beautiful practice. Mm-hmm. Um but I just lost my train of thought. I don't know. Everyone should wiggle. <laughs> <laughs> everybody should wiggle. That's okay. You know, yeah. So, but you you did say, I love it. I, you, everybody wants to pee. Everybody wants to poop. And everybody wants to basically get off, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know that pooping is really important to you. Just to put it, <laughs> frankly, just to put it like, no, you know, I'm not going to mince words, right? So, <laughs> Can you like? Let me tell you more about why pooping is important to me. (laughs) I mean, like, obviously it's fucking important, right? But like, yeah, go ahead. It should be important to everyone. Yeah, it's something you have to do. Let's get real for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Pooping should be important to everyone. How you poop says a lot about how well your body is or is not. Mm -hmm. And. Regardless of the pelvic floor, which I'm sure we'll talk more about in a second, but what your poop looks like is telling you a lot of information about how hydrated you are, what types of foods you're eating, maybe how stressed you are, maybe at what point in your menstrual cycle you are. So, you know, there's so many different things that our poops can tell us. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're all, most people look at the toilet after they poop. Right. Am I right? <laughs> well, I, I would have to assume I have, you know, so, that's got to be that's got to be universal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's instinctual. That's instinctual. Like it's a way to gather data about how your body is doing. And a lot of people are constipated in general. We're not getting enough water into our bodies. We're stressed out, which can cause tight pelvic floors. Um, and. I mean, there's so many reasons that constipation can occur. And for those of you who are defecating or going poop, I would say less than once a day, honestly, is constipation. That's a little bit, I'm, I'm being a little bit dramatic, but if you're not pooping every every two days, then, then you're in a state of constipation. And yeah. that's impacting you if your body can't eliminate then you're caught in the cycle of toxin buildup and holding patterns um, and discomfort. (laughs) discomfort. Yeah, no kidding. Discomfort for sure. Right. And so these are just basic things. But I talk to my patients, every single one of my patients, I talk to them about their pooping habits. Um, so let's talk about the squatty potty, everybody. So yeah, I was about to bring it up. If you, if you didn't, I was gonna, yeah. (laughs) Good, good. So the squatty potty is a really popular device nowadays. And thank goodness that 
some genius decided to market it in a way that was accessible to the general population and reduce stigma around pooping posture. So whoever that human is, thank you. Because should, pooping posture... Keep talking. I'm going to look it up because we should thank him. <laughs> yes, <laughs> or totally. her. Or her, Normally. excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> um, pooping posture is everything. So our bodies were designed to squat on the earth to defecate. And that means that we're in a deep knee bend and our feet are in uh, what we call dorsiflexion. You know, your toes are flexed towards your toes up and your hips are deeply bent. And so all of those different um, angles that you're creating in the body when you squat to poop are helping your pelvic floor to relax and release your poop. So when we use a squatty body, it elevates our feet so that we can get into a squatting posture. And do you want me to go into some of the science around why this happens or is that too much? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm cool with it. I, I think it's fairly self-evident, but you know, go right ahead anyways, you know? <laughs> it is self-evident. Like I was saying, it's an instinctual position that we get into and, and you know, the comfort height toilet of the West is, uh, uh, I'm just going to call it a curse. <laughs> a curse. No, no kidding. Right. And yeah, I mean, just, I mean, for those of us that have hip pain, it's a blessing. Mm. Um, you know, and for those of us who are, are further along in our life, that getting that low to the ground, is inaccessible. It's a beautiful thing, but. <laughs> so it's funny. It I changes things. I looked up inventor of the squatty potty, right? Oh, and it's okay. it's the it's the Edwards family, right? Jill, um, hang on a second. Where to go? Bobby, or I'm sorry, it wasn't Jill. It was Judy, Bobby, and Bill. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's this article that says mom's constipation turns into a thirty million dollar invention, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, why didn't I think of that? So they they. <laughs> they credit it to the whole family. I guess they invented it together. What a lovely tale of of taking taking healthier shits. Pardon my French, right? <laughs> yes, I mean, really, it's been a fantastic invention that helps a lot of my patients to poop better. And honestly, even if you don't have pelvic floor dysfunction, you should have a squatty potty. Like, yeah, it's not the most sightly thing to have in the bathroom, and people are a little embarrassed about it, but they make it in bamboo, and... <laughs> If it's going to make you have a happier poop, then I would suggest considering it. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> I won't go into the science of it, but it's just, it's a really fascinating thing that can. Uh, we can suffice it to say that it's how we evolved pooping, right? Squatting. Yeah. 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 So it's just obvious that we, sh we shouldn't. I mean, I can imagine just taking myself out of my own body when you see yourself sit on the conventional western toilet you know your back is arched forward you're in a hunching kind of seated posture nothing about it looks all that you know healthy right exactly <laughs> i mean even just that basic position where the the lower back is really rounded and our tailbone is kind of tucking underneath us that's that's called a posterior pelvic tilt and it actually causes our pelvic floor to tighten which of course means we're not going to be able to poop good, <laughs> you know? And then when we elevate our feet and we bend our knees more, it actually causes the pelvic floor to lengthen because it's changing the position of our pelvis. And that's just a basic biomechanics um, that I can't help myself by including because I am a physical therapist, but mm -hmm. 
Well, it's funny. You said something earlier that stuck out to me. I really liked it. You said something about the art of uh, rest, I believe is what you said. The art of rest. And that kind of stuck out. And I thought to myself, maybe that'll be the title of this year episode. But now I'm thinking the art of rest and poop or something (laughs) along those lines. (laughs) But no, no, that'd just be clickbait. And I don't like clickbait. Clickbait, oh my but... gosh! Well, I'm sure we'll come up with exactly the right title. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not too I, concerned. I'm not too I'm concerned. I'm not too concerned either. I do. I do. Um, speaking of pooping, no, I'm kidding. I don't have to poop, but I do need to pee and uh, take a little break. So can yeah, we we'll it? we'll hit the pause button and we'll be back. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. So we're back. We've taken care of our bodies. We've done some things we've filled our glasses of water and whatnot um you know and if this okay so i'm thinking i'm going to take this episode here into just the 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 weird realm for a moment um because i know that you have some interests that some people might like i don't even know what they might call it um some might call it superstitious even but like for instance crystals can you tell us about crystals and what your interest in them is and maybe like give us a couple of examples of specific crystals? Okay. <clears throat> so let's start off by challenging the thinking that what I'm about to tell you is weird. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, it is different, maybe. Let's call it different. <laughs> well, I like weird stuff, so I use that word like an endearing as, way. In yes. an endearing way. Yes, yeah. everyone uses the word weird differently. Isn't that the truth? Um, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, in my attempts to normalize crystals, uh, I do find them to be particularly magical and mystical, and so filled with uh, opportunities to ask more. So, I love rocks for so many reasons. I mean, growing up in Wyoming. I had the opportunity to always have my hands in the dirt and be really exploring the rocks. Uh, the Rocky Mountains are beautiful. If you haven't seen them, please do. Mm-hmm. But um, the rocks, I think, started for me when, when I grew up there. And for those of you that are familiar with the Tetons, that is where I'm from. And there actually is a lot of quartz crystal within the Tetons, within that part of the Rocky Mountains. If not all of it, I'm not entirely sure. Um, and, you know, therefore, it, it has a high vibration, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of unique people that are attracted to the community of Jackson. And I believe part of it is because of the, the rocks. <laughs> mm-hmm. For those of you that have been to Jackson, you know, you fly in and you see those Tetons and they're just jaw dropping. Um, based on your vision, but they also have an impact on on your body. So how do crystals impact your body? So rocks are not dumb as rocks. Mm, well said. <laughs> They're very well said. intelligent. And crystals are, I lovingly call rocks of all kinds. You know, crystals, gems, I call them rocks lovingly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but crystals, like, take, for example, quartz, clear quartz, is um, one of the most widely used and strong crystals within the realm. 
Um, and I ha actually had the privilege of digging my own quartz in Arkansas from mm. some really red dirt. And you dig up these pieces of quartz that have formed in this perfect point and maybe multiple perfect points. And it all happened in the dirt throughout the processes of mother nature and pressure and you know just so many elements to create this this particular formation of molecules because really a rock is a formation of molecules right right so i sort of believe that like the qualities that created that rock and that crystal sort of they take on these qualities and that's part of their healing and part of what we can feel in our bodies um, so quartz is a really cleansing crystal. It is clear, it is pointed, which helps to direct energy. So when any rock has um, the ability to make natural points, it, it can really benefit us in terms of directing energy on our body. So I use crystals in my yoga practice and in my um, like self-massage practice and Reiki practice to help move energy in my physical body. Um, and when I, when I was young, I loved crystals because I was a kid and I knew their magic inherently. And then I, you know, I progressed as an adult and I kind of lost my sort of interest in them until college. I started to realize that it was actually a really fascinating sort of market. I mean, there's so many ways that crystals are sold and uh, where they come from. And it's just, it's a really neat realm. Um, <clears throat> So when I first started to use them again as an adult, it started out more as like a uh, belief in the in the ability of the crystals, but also like kind of like a, eh, I haven't really felt it. So I'm going to do like this placebo effect and I'm going to believe that this rock is going to help me direct my energy and it's maybe going to help me um, direct more compassion towards myself and others. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> for those of you that are curious about the uh, wide impacts of crystals from a, a realm that includes everything from the history of the rock and how it was used many lineages ago to how it impacts your spiritual self, your physical self, your emotional self, your mental self. Uh, it's a database. It's the coolest database for those who really geek out on rocks like me. It's called crystalvaults.com. Hmm. And... Um, yeah, you can Google like quartz crystal vaults and it'll bring up all of this information. And, you know, one has to wonder like where all this information came from, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the history of crystals goes far and far and wide back. And, you know, long ago they were, they were more highly regarded, you know, now they've become this sort of new agey thing that only the, the weird people use, right? <laughs> right, right, right. But I do believe that I have actually, you know, even though I'm in this environment, I do feel like they are becoming more widely used and for better or for worse, popularization helps to take these more fringy concepts and make them more mainstream and help other people start to be curious. Like, hmm, maybe this rock can help me find a lover. <laughs> you well, know? I tell you what, I, <laughs> I tell you what. I, it makes me think, cause you're right. The word weird, um, you, you, you don't want to throw that, that around lightly because there have been times in our history where weirdness resulted in death, you know, let's just be real. So normalization is important as, uh, as what I'm getting at here. And it makes me think of the, the trend right now. I'm sure you're aware of it 
of sort of witchiness, right? And um, I'm curious just to get your thoughts on that in terms of, because you use the word magic a couple of times. And mm-hmm. I am inclined to, you know, I, I always think of myself as a, as a skeptic and a, and a rational thinker. Um, but despite my rationality, I do have <clears throat> a tendency to believe in the mystical to some extent. And I like that word more than weird. I like mystical. Um, so what, yeah, what are your thoughts there? Okay. So mystical is a great word because it implies that there's something about this thing that we don't know. It's a mystery. We might never know it. Um, and I think that, you know, that's really the vibration behind witchiness is this belief in something bigger and sometimes weird, you know, whether you believe in like paranormal activity or you believe in Christ's angels or you believe in, you know, (laughs) there's so many ways this conversation can go really. Mm -hmm. But when we think about the, I love, I mean, the, so I think, okay, what I'm hearing is your initial question is that what is my opinion on witchiness being more popularized? Is that kind of? Yeah, that's kind of the source <laughs> of the question. It's becoming a trend. It is trend. becoming a trend. Yes. yes. Okay. So for example, um, a family member of mine works for a medical company and they've all been working on Zoom, of course, over the last year. And they haven't been able to do in-person team building activities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've all been suffering from that inability to work together in our teammate with our teammates so they came up with an idea for a team building activity over zoom in which they sent each member of the team these little kits to make your own cocktails um it was like i don't make your own cocktail night and (laughs) (laughs) that that has its own implications but the the theme of the cocktail making kit was very we're going to use the word witchy and I'll i'll describe to you what the kit was so it was two cards that talked about the four different drink recipes and they had this, um, they were all black and they had sort of neon lettering and at the top was a logo with like a triangle and um, the eagle eye in it and then some lines outward from there and sort of sacred geometry that I find in a lot of witchy realms because sacred geometry also directs energy, but (laughs) I digress. so well, sacred, it just has sac- this very witchy vibe. I'll make one comment. I'll make yeah. one comment. Sac- sacred geometry is one of those things that like is almost universal. You can find it in in iconography in all of our different cultures. So, you know, just a thought. Just a thought there. But go ahead. Yeah. Um, right. So that's kind of just one element of like. So, so what's so what is witchy? What does that mean to people? You know, I I consider it as sort of an umbrella term for different practices, whether you're using crystals or you're talking about tarot cards or you're talking about paranormal activity or supernatural beings or, and you're, you know, maybe you're casting spells or intentions that are very directive. Um, There's so many ways that like witchcraft can actually present itself and you know, you and I both have have studied a little bit about Salem, Massachusetts, and yeah. understood some of these d- 
deeper elements of the history of witch and witchcraft and its evolution in our time most recently. Um, but to me, I like to just kind of think about it more broadly and more peacefully is that like the elements of witchcraft are, are little gifts like rocks and intentions and spells and um, <laughs> I'm getting distracted in my own mind right now, but um, that's okay. That's okay. all of these little things that help us to direct energy. Um, you know, can I ask you, cause I mean, it's a little bit of a change of topic, right? Unless we want to, is any more thoughts on which on witchiness? <laughs> well, I think, I think the reason it's become popular mm. is because I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that there's a lot more to life than we can really imagine. <laughs> and that's to me what the, the, what the witchiness is all about is it's about magic and it's about inviting mystery back into your life in a way that allows you to ponder the larger aspects of your being that you might never know about but that ultimately do exist and support you. And that's the cool thing about, you know, getting into the feeling sensations of using crystals to, to direct energy and having a tarot card reading, you know, resonate with you week after week because of a certain circumstance in your life, you know. When we start to really understand that we have tools that help us to direct our energy, witchiness becomes accessible to us all and includes so many things, you know, whether you're into essential oils and plant medicines or you like crystals and working with the moon cycles. I mm -hmm. mean, there's so many ways that we can embody these tools and access our magic. <laughs> That's what it's about. And I think people are waking up to the fact that they're made of magic and they're getting curious about how they can access it. So, mm. you know, I hope that witchiness isn't just a leading trend. I think that everyone can benefit from playing. Well, you know, magic. trends trends are not always a bad thing. Um, <laughs> no, no. You know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I hope, yeah. I hope the gardening trend is here to stay. For instance, mm -hmm. right? Like, <clears throat> if it's a force for good, a trend should be embraced. Um, you mentioned essential oils, and I'm curious if you would summarize your relationship to essential oils for us uh, <clears throat> sure um, essential oils are they're just plant plant medicine they're gifts from the earth and they're these little bottles of plant power I mean one bottle of essential oil is for lemons, for example, I think there's just hundreds of lemon rinds, essential oil lemon is made from the rinds, and I think there's just hundreds upon hundreds of lemon rinds in one bottle of essential oil. Um, so there are these really potent tools that have the ability to impact our bodies, our physiology, and our internal systems, as well as our mental capacity and our, you know, our limbic system and our emotions. Um, so aromatherapy is, has been used for many, many years, um, as a tool to access emotions because of the direct connection that your nerves that live in your nose and talk to your brain, um, are the, the fastest input 
to the limbic system. Mm-hmm. And limbic system is where your emotions and your memories live. So when you use essential oils, you access your limbic system in a, in a very direct way. You know, and it's like, for example, you, you probably have certain smells, whether it's your, you know, your loved one who's passed, maybe their perfume or, I don't know, cow manure brings up a lot of memories for some people. There's just, yeah, you know, yeah. we have these examples in our lives that help us realize like, oh, yeah, smell really does impact me a lot. <laughs> mm. um, and the essential oils are, each of them are so, they're just so potent um, and they're far and wide. I mean, everything from peppermint and lavender, cinnamon and ginger to more more trees like cypress and black spruce and then also herbs like black pepper and turmeric uh, they can all be distilled into oils that we can then utilize maybe topically if they're safe for topical use but most essential oils need to be diluted because of how strong they are so um, something to be cautious of but my experience with essential oils has been I love experimenting with them for my physiology, things like my digestion and um, maybe my skin. But I'm, I'm a little bit more interested in the emotional properties of essential oils. Um, so I started using essential oils, I think, probably more than anything to help heal my emotional systems and find peace within my own heart. Mm. Uh, Help me let go of things and process pains and addictions and really just kind of move through things. And that's kind of what essential oils can do from an emotional standpoint is if we're ready, if we're ready to open ourselves to our depths and access our inner wisdom, then the essential oils are the conduit. They carry you there. So that's pretty cool because um, there's so many ways that they can assist us. They they often are referred to as our allies. Um, yeah. So those of you that are curious about essential oils, I encourage you to be open to it. I think right now that there's a lot of there's a lot of information about essential oils right now that is not so positive. But I think because of the way they're marketed and um, now they are more in demand than ever. So the actual production uh, processes are not, they don't have a lot of integrity. So there's some, you know, just crappy oils out there and stuff. Um, Do you have a company? Do you have a company that you trust? I do. Um, I, I really do love the doTERRA essential oil collection. They are some of the most ethically sourced and pure oils that you can buy and they're they're definitely expensive and and that's something to consider uh, but there is a company that's actually even more local i think out of california called revive and their oils have um, just a better price point i think because they don't have a middleman or something like that i'm not exactly sure um, but i have also enjoyed their oils as well um, but one of the reasons I choose doTERRA is because I do use the oils a lot on my body and sometimes in my body. And I know that their practices for distilling the oils are um, the highest grade. So I trust their solutions in my tissues. 
Because um, sure. again, these are these are potent medicines, and we have to be cautious when we're using essential oils. Mm-hmm. Well, it's <clears throat> it's something that I definitely relate to. Um, just the power of plants, right? If you pay attention, like yeah. plants have, a, they got an awful lot of power. Um, it's hard to ignore it, you know? Well, and I love that too. I mean, with your work, it's, it's this patient process, right? To get mm-hmm. to know the plants and what their needs are, you know, and it's the same journey with essential oils. Like we have to be patient with our experience with an oil and see what it has to teach us and see what we are asking from it, you know? And, um, a patient process to develop the relationships that we can with plants um you know i think they're a great example of how how we can sort of reintroduce nature into our lives um in a very like convenient way i hate to even use that word um Mm. but you know not everybody has the luxury of living in the woods and having you know the smell of you know, cedar floating in on the breeze or cypress. And, you know, you can almost recreate that um, in some ways, Um, you know, having, having studied recreation, right. Uh, (laughs) We used to talk about how it's funny, that word, it's so simple, right. We, and most people don't put two and two together, but we're, whenever we're recreating, we are sort of recreating something from our biology, our, our lineage. Um, You know, you think about some of these games we play that are very much akin to warfare or you know it's just it's like we have these biological needs and recreation i've found is our is sort of our instinctual way to feed those needs in a in a way that is acceptable you know for our time uh, I don't know if I'm losing it, losing it here, but no, I'm I, loving this. I have never considered the etymology of recreation and that mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. recreate. Like I'm just mind blown in this moment right now because it's so true. And we engage and we get outside and we we engage our bodies. You know, mm-hmm. we are recreating our internal landscape. <laughs> we are, yeah. I mean, why do you think fishing is so fucking popular, right? Like. People used to do that out of necessity, but it, it it's become something we do out of out of want, out of desire for for the old days, so to speak. And you don't even you don't even know it half the time. It's kind of funny. But when we embody these needs, when we recognize that we are creatures of the earth and we we need to feed our souls, right? You know, you can you can em- embrace practices uh, and the use of things like essential oils to kind of bring nature back to you. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, they're cert- they're a gift from the earth, and developing a relationship with the plants through the oils is uh, is amazing. So you know, definitely, if you're curious, keep learning, keep reading, um, and enjoy the journey of finding out which oils make you tick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm going to change the subject a little bit here, but, um, chanting. Mm. So is chanting in the weird category. <laughs> I, you know, some people would say, some people would say, Again, it's to me, I feel like we're moving from sort of the mystical realm, like back into 
um, what you might call the tangible or. Well, it's funny that you say that because chanting, I was, as I was thinking just now, it's really just another way to change our vibration. And with mm -hmm. chanting, we're actually vibrating. So that seems, you know, not too far fetched. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, with the crystals and with the essential oils, we've also talked about how they can shift your state, right? Change your, change your energy. And um, that's what chanting does in a very focused and fast way. So for those of you that are a little into the mystical stuff, but you haven't dipped your toes in too much, chanting is a great place to start to be like, whoa, I can feel my own energy field. <laughs> um, because when you start to vibrate within your own body, you start to like really step into your whole self uh, mm. through your voice. And well, it's funny. I, I interviewed somebody yesterday. I haven't posted it yet, but I guess I won't, I won't allude to anything too much, but basically I interviewed my, my pot dealer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I love it. <laughs> and, and just being totally real about it, you know? And so at one point in the conversation, he says something about how, you know, we're antennas, right? And as in humans, as in people, like we are an antenna and we are projecting a vibration was the, was the implication. Like he was, he was kind kind of saying that, you know, if you are projecting a negative vibration, it, it can be received by others. And, and I think the same goes for, you know, it's a, an antenna is a good analogy to me. I, I, I was struck when he said it because I thought it was profound and he just was moving right through. We didn't even talk about it, but. Well, no, I love that you're bringing this up because yeah. really chanting is, is strengthening your antenna, right? Mm -hmm. So in yoga, actually, we, we talk about something called uh, your Shashumna Nadi. So Nadi, N-A-D-I is a channel within the body. That's a Sanskrit word for channel. And Shashumna means central your central channel um so those for those of you that might be interested in something like chakras like those are all situated within your shishumna nadi in your body and have to do chakras are um, energy centers within your body represented by different things like basic needs and willpower and love and speech and intuition um, that sort of direct your your expression of who you are but um chanting strengthens your central channel because you're you know vibrating out of your throat and focusing your actual vibration uh so when i think about chanting if you think about singing and song how, like what's actually happening within the molecules that are actually vibrating in front of you like just get on a basic physics chemistry level right now as i talk <laughs> to you on the microphone you know, the sound waves are bouncing around and changing and evolving with my speech and the way I'm holding my mouth and my body and everything else, right? Mm -hmm. So when you chant and you assume a really steady posture and you start to hold deep amounts of air in your belly and you start to control how that air is exiting your body in a way that is... Um, like sustained, right? So when you're chanting, like 
characteristics, for example, would be like the OM. Mm-hmm. So when we chant OM, you know, we're, we're sustaining that O vibration. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself is aligning the molecules in your, in your field around you. Mm-hmm. a certain vibration and it changes your physiology for a number of reasons when you even as you talk but especially when you're holding consonants or vowels mostly vowels mm-hmm. um, you are vibrating your vagus nerve and your vagus nerve is one of the largest networks of single nerve pathway in your body your vagus nerve goes all the way from your digestive system and your sometimes I think in the pelvic floor I need to check on that Hmm. but um, all throughout our organ systems and into our brain and the vagus nerve helps to activate our uh, parasympathetic nervous system also known as our rest and digest system which helps to turn off our fight-or-flight response right our sympathetic nervous system Um, and so when we when we vibrate our vagus nerve and we really have good diaphragm control and our pelvic floor and our diaphragm moving together and we're channeling our voice chanting like i said is a fast track to shifting your state Um, and so it's a great tool for a lot of people that are more interested in fast state shifts Uh, whether you like roller coasters or cigarettes or whatever your thing is that makes you shift, you know, um, chanting might be the right practice for you to explore. Yeah. Yeah. Could you give us a quick example? Uh, you want me to chant? (laughs) Yeah. Just, just, just a little bit, you know? Yeah. I'm sure the, I'm sure the listeners are, you know, are curious, right? Like, what does this look, what does this look like? What does it sound like? good question <laughs> yeah well i hope the microphone works out i'm gonna take a sip of water and i would say maybe just like yeah don't don't chant directly at the microphone but <laughs> just like turn Noted. turn your head turn your head to the side and i bet you will pick it up okay yeah okay <laughs> all right let me just uh, sit upright and decide what I hope to vibrate for you all. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. Mm. <laughs> I'm just going to do an ohm. I think that that is one of the most accessible vibrations for a lot of people to try. And ohm is the sound of the universe as it's referred to. Um, very universal sound uh, so I think that would be the best place to start <laughs> well, well I like that idea it is it is it's the most widely known of what what do you call the is this the kundalini um so kundalini yoga does include a lot of chanting in its practices and specific chants um, that have specific Sanskrit meanings Um, chanting om is more far and wide stretches across multiple yoga lineages and Mm -hmm. practices um and kundalini certainly includes the om but uh okay well i may join you i may join you we'll see we'll see okay cool i love it yeah so what i'm gonna propose is um a round of three ohms 
and then maybe a nice like deep breath and just an exhale and then three more ohms okay how does that sound that sounds good okay so let's prepare for those of you who would like to join us in our oming practice by all means prepare your seats <laughs> So find a comfortable position where you can actually feel heavy and comfortable in your pelvis and you can reach your, your head towards the ceiling in the sky. I'm going to just take a couple of deep breaths in through the nose and not through the mouth. You're just settling into your seat. Maybe giving a couple of wiggles. <laughs> I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> Good. I love it. Uh, so let's take a big breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. Breath in for Om. the resonance of chanting takes time and it takes trust in your body and it just takes practice it's a, it's a biomechanical relationship with your vocal cords and your air and your diaphragm and your lungs and your ribcage and it can be really fun to learn those systems in your body through sounding and chanting um, it's just it's they're a fascinating process to have diving into this. It's really changed how I see myself. Well, I hope we didn't freak everybody out there, but <laughs> well, you know, we're getting weird, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there is power with all of these practices. Um, just to put it mildly, right? The mystical should not be ignored right it shouldn't be ignored it shouldn't be taboo it should be it should be 
public knowledge. And, you know, some people aren't ever going to really get into this stuff. It'll it'll always seem a little too out there for them. But the truth is, it's just not that bizarre. You know, like you said, this is cross-cultural stuff. Um, in I mean, a lot do you... of ways, it's just being open to this larger orchestra that's happening behind the curtain that we can't see. Mm-hmm. And by engaging with things like yoga and chanting and oils and intention and breathing, I mean, it's it's all just an invitation to feel a little bit more deeply into our experience mm-hmm. in this body, <laughs> on yeah, this planet. Yeah. You know, and that in and of itself is an incredible gift. And there are so many ways to open ourselves to it. And my practices are just some of the ways, you know, I mean, all of it really is, is an an invitation to get curious and whatever the ways that you choose in your life to be curious about what, what's bigger than you. I mean, that's your magic and that's your medicine and and Mm -hmm. keep pursuing things that make you feel a little weird. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I like how you kind of took it to interest, right? Because you do have to let your own kind of curiosity be your guide, I believe. Um, and I've been, I've been for the last year or two, been really pondering this idea of a polymath. It's, it's a silly word. I don't even hardly like using it, but the concept, the definition is basically somebody with multiple skill sets, um, that can solve complex problems. That's, that's the nuts and bolts of what it is to be a polymath. And, when I heard this word and the definition, I said, well, shit, that's kind of what I'm trying to be. And I never knew it, but you know, whatever the Jack of all trades, blah, blah, blah. I've talked about this on episodes in the past, but I think you fit the bill, even though you kind of, you know, so again, similar to me with gardening, it's so hyper specialized, but you clearly have such a diverse array of interests and skill sets. Even, uh, you could call all of this, um, even though your job is specific, you, you, you clearly are not a one trick pony, shall we say? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> no, no. I just think it's so cool. That's why I wanted to kind of give everybody like an introduction to all these different concepts. Um, cause we're just kind of skimming the surface and, you know, maybe we'll have more more episodes where we can dive deeper down the road. But, you know, I did want to bring up, what was it here? Um, well, yeah, I want to kind of like take it back towards your actual practice, your, your job, um, and the, the, the techniques that you use, you know, I know that you recently got certified in something called dry needling. Is that right? Yes. So what, what is dry needling? Sure. So, Dry needling is just one modality that physical therapists use, and um, other modalities, for example, would be like something like massage is a modality, hot and cold packs are a modality, ultrasound, are, that's a modality. Um, there's a lot of different thing tools that we use as physical therapists, and dry needling is just one of them. Um, and it's a hot topic right now. It's a bit controversial because we're using uh, the same style of really thin microfilament needles that are utilized during acupuncture sessions by acupuncturists. Um, 
So there's lots of debate around this particular tool and kind of who claim who lays claim to it, but. Um, it really is just a tool, and we use it a little differently as physical therapists. Uh, we So with acupuncturists, they're, they're placing the needles along meridians that they spend incredible amounts of time to understand because there are so many meridians in our bodies. Um, and putting the needles in the meridians impacts different systems within your body to help you recover and heal from a number of different things. And as physical therapists, we see the needles as a tool for impacting the musculoskeletal system. So we find knots or trigger points in muscles, and we place the microfilament needle there and drive it into the muscle. And we're looking for what's called a twitch response, uh, which is just sort of a reboot, if you will, sort of a jolt to the Sounds. muscle belly, and it's contacting it to the nervous system. Sounds like the deer, the deer, right? The shiver. Right? Ah, yes. How mm -hmm. fun. What a great connection. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a cool way to think about it. So, yeah, as, as a dry needling practitioner, you're, you're hoping to kind of reboot a little bit of that neuromuscular connection. Um, so that's just one tool that I use as a pelvic floor physical therapist. So I'm putting those needles into places like the glutes um, as well as the inner thighs and sometimes in the lower back. Um, those are some of the main areas that I can utilize the needles for certain folks. It certainly isn't right for everybody, um, but it's a great tool. And mm -hmm. I also use a lot of my hands. Uh, so I do a lot of myofascial release using um, trigger point release, um, applying direct pressure through my hands to different muscle groups on my patients, um, low back, hips, inner thighs, um, major muscle groups that surround the pelvis to mm -hmm. reduce tension in the muscles and to also um, increase blood flow to the tissues so that the muscles can relax. And when we think about a knot, right, we all get knots like in our traps, our upper back. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has that sensation of like knots in their neck and a knot is just the muscle belly trying to protect you. Um, so when there's any kind of weakness in muscles, they are able to protect the joint that they surround quite as well. So um, in order for a weak muscle to still protect the joint, it has to develop a trigger point to keep you safe. Really, it's, a, it's just the body trying to protect you, but nobody likes a knot and it's not optimal because it's not getting good blood flow and it hurts. Um, so with myofascial release, we hit the trigger points with uh, deep pressure and hope to impact it. Um, so I do also do myofascial release internally um, to release the muscles of the pelvic floor that can also develop trigger points. And so the other half of the fact that you know, we have a knot and trigger points can be either active or what we call latent, which means they're kind of sleeping um, and not really causing symptoms. Whereas an active trigger point is actually referring pain to potentially a different part of your body. Uh, so trigger points can be kind of mysterious in their own ways. But um, if you, you know, hit a trigger point, for example, in your neck and it gives you a headache, that is an active trigger point that is referring pain to a different part of your body. And so all the techniques I use are really you know, of course, they're impacting the muscle, musculoskeletal system, but we're also impacting the brain a lot with these techniques. Um, 
even with just gentle massage, we're sending positive, positive input to the nervous system. Um, and you know, there's, there's so many ways to use so many techniques to impact the, the brain and the body. Um, those are just some of the ways that I, that I do that. It's so cool. It's so cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I guess, do you, do you still incorporate yoga into your clinical practice? Like, do you have your, you know, aside from these other techniques, are you getting them? I mean, I think of physical therapy as a lot of stretching and I always imagine, you know, people on the Stairmaster and stuff, but I'm sure that's just, that's just from that's just from watching TV and shit. No, but, but I love that you said that because yeah. that is our most common way of perceiving PT to be, you know, yeah. it's like a uh, traditional outpatient setting where, yeah, you're warming up on the treadmill or the bike and your PT showing you how to stretch your, you know, hamstrings or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is PT as well, for sure. And, um, you know, it's funny, my first six months as a professional, I was working in an, in a typical outpatient orthopedic setting where that was exactly what it looked like. Um, mm-hmm. And all the while, I did know that pelvic floor PT was my passion, but I had to kind of hold off for the right opportunity to come. Um, so, and because, you know, yoga is the foundation, like I wouldn't have pursued a degree in physical therapy had it not been for my study of yoga. Um, so throughout my education of being, becoming a physical therapist, like the foundation of yoga was always there for me. It was supporting me through my studentship, keeping my sanity, <laughs> um, you know, and helping me to cope with the stressors of PT school. But it was also this launch pad for me to apply my new movement science knowledge to my yoga practice. And so it's always been interwoven for me um, in my mind and as I've become a practitioner and a, a clinician, now I'm teaching, yes, my patients how to utilize different techniques that certainly can be considered yoga. Um, we look a lot with breathing mechanics as pelvic floor physical therapists. It's really important to be able to manage the pressure systems in your trunk uh, for good pelvic health. and. So I certainly teach my patients different techniques for breathing. And some patients, of course, something like lion's breath might actually be great for them because it, you know, facilitates diaphragm synchronization and it facilitates release of stress. And a lot of a lot of my patients who are working with pelvic pain often have, you know, high stressors in their lives. Um, you know, of course, the more stress we have, the more knots we're gonna have in our neck, right? The more knots we might have in our pelvic floor too. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I got off track there. But. No, no, I'm just still thinking about it's OK. Um, I'm thinking about as weird as it sounds, a Chinese proverb. Um, I don't know if it's Chinese proverb, actually. I, I don't know where I read it, but I read it recently. And it's an old saying almost about the negative of not being a specialist, if you will. Um, I'm kind of coming back to this idea of the polymath, but. Oh, okay. The saying sure. the, the saying goes, many knives in the drawer, but none sharp. It's kind of like a way of saying that maybe you can overdo this. You can almost try to acquire too many skill sets. And I've heard I've heard <laughs> different different ways of saying this stuff, but I I can't help but think that there might be something there. But at the same time, it's not to say that 
you shouldn't have three or four really good, really sharp knives, right? <laughs> well, and, I, I mean, this is a this is a great debate here. You know, mm-hmm, like I mm-hmm. I present as a specialist in pelvic floor PT, but my interests are so far and wide that sometimes you know I've sought out you know different certifications for things like Reiki and uh, different styles of yoga and um, you know and, and always trying to kind of get all the all the knives right but sharp it's so true and i'm learning now as a pelvic floor provider that wow like this is one of my main knives and i still have so much to learn about treating pelvic floor patients um Mm -hmm. but it is something i'm so excited about so passionate about and so ready to to help people with so um yes if you think you need pelvic floor pt check out a multiple amount of resources that Mike and I will post after the show on how to do that. Mm, yes. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to wrap it up, you know, like perfect. So good. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. Right. It's, it's truly it's an my honor. Pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly you're doing, you know, doing important work. So I hope that you continue, you know, continue to sharpen those knives. Right. thank you so much Frank for having me on and inviting me into this space to talk about so many different things there's so many ways that we can access our magic and our being and you know the earth is a wonderful place to start and bless you with all of your gardening Hmm. Um, and I'm just happy to be a part of the the process of accessing the physical body and helping people understand their own so thank you all for having me it's been so fun to share All right. Bye bye. (laughs) Well, I hope you all enjoyed that one. I know I did. As I said, you know, Dr. Melissa, she's a she's a natural born healer. Maybe she's a witch even. (laughs) But don't worry, she's a good witch. I promise. And it's, it's just so cool to see people, as I've said before, who are, who are on their path, who are doing exactly what they are supposed to be. She is, she is a prime example of that. Now, whether or not you need pelvic floor physical therapy, you know, I hope you got something out of this episode Um, you know, there's so much that we can do when it comes to caring for our bodies and connecting with our environment or, you know, there's, there's so many practices that we should, we should take the time to consider and to maybe try especially some of these that go back thousands and thousands of years, right? You know, it's funny, the Om, when we were chanting, I was, I was chanting with her. I was chanting, I was chanting into the microphone, but I find that the Om sometimes messes with the, the microphone. Um, so it didn't seem to register my voice 
just hers, which I found interesting because I was, I was not really holding back. Um, the point of the ohm, in fact, is to, is to not hold back, but also not to force, right? It's a controlled exhale with a vibration and it, it's hard to, it's hard to do until you can feel the vibration. It helps to have a guide. So, you know, I'd encourage you to use that, that rewind feature and, uh, maybe go back and try to ohm with Melissa. Um, if you can't, you know, it's okay if you can't hear my voice. I was just following her lead anyways. So, um, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, you know, me and, me and Dr. Melissa spoke for a little bit after the, after the interview and, uh, she did mention at one point, she said, the only thing that I regret saying was that I am a yogi. I said, why would you, why would you feel that way? I, I call you a yogi. She said, well, you know, yogi is a word. It's a word for sort of an ascended master. So to call oneself a yogi is, it's not exactly proper. It's sort of something we, we refer to people um, when they've achieved a certain level of mastery. And often you don't even refer to them as yogi until perhaps after they're gone. I might be putting words in her mouth here. I'm not sure she said all that, but I, I, that's what I kind of gathered. Um, so she, you know, she, I told her if she wanted to, we could, we could address it. She said, oh, it's not a big deal. But I just thought I'd say that because, you know, humility is important and words matter. And for anyone that is into yoga, I suppose that's something to consider is we shouldn't. We shouldn't label ourselves as yogis. It's like I told her, um, it reminds me of the master gardener title. You know, there's a, there's a class you can take and nothing against the class. I think it's a good class, but it's not all that intensive. I mean, it is, but it's, you know, I, I'll have to look, but I, I believe it's only a handful of days worth of coursework. Um, you know, I believe the permaculture design course is much, much more rigorous and sort of, um, I don't know, it's a bit broader, but the Master Gardener course, you know, it just always kind of irked me that people called themselves Master Gardeners, right? I just... I don't like it. I don't like it. You know, it's, it's kind of cocky. It's kind of presumptuous. It's to claim that there's not much else to learn. And with a thing like gardening and equally with a thing like yoga, there's so much to know, almost an infinite amount of potential knowledge to gain that to call oneself a master. Hmm just doesn't seem quite right. So I appreciated when she mentioned that to me. Um, I thought I would just make that final disclaimer to the conversation because I think everything else was spot on. Um, all right, guys, I appreciate it. I know it's been a long one. I just thought I'd wrap that up. Um, this has been Mike Whistler with the Easy Peasy Podcast. Talk to you soon. Thank you.